Hello, welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsiff.net. This is the interview show that goes deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott GX Goldfine, and I thank you as always for your continued interest and support in the program. You can watch the video version at Funkinsiff.net or on YouTube, and the audio version is available at iTunes, Spotify, Google, just about any podcast source. And be sure to subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. And I want to also give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I am a proud uh, Funk ambassador. That's a recent development. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and help keep the funk alive. Okay. For this episode, I am so delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studios from all the way across the pond, singer, multi-instrumentalist, producer, and composer, Carl McIntosh, best known for his leadership role with the popular 1980s British soul and dance music trio, Loose Ends. During that decade, the group released five albums, three of which went top 20 in the UK, and two of which rose to the United States R&B Top 10. From those spawned a half dozen Top 40 singles within the UK and six Top 10 R&B tracks within the US. Among those, the number one smashes Hanging on a String in 1984 and Slow Down in 1986. Another song, Watching You, peaked at number uh, two in 1988. Very, very impressive. Carl, thank you for joining the show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I know uh, you're over the pond, as I said, but where are we finding you to today, actually? Well, I'm in London at the moment in my studio in, in my little room here and just uh, in Lewisham in London. <laughs> just, um, I mean, I, I'm based out here. This is where I do most of my work at the moment. It's going to change very soon. I'm getting a little bit tired of it, you know, at the moment. Um, been here for about 30 years. And it, it, it's a little bit um, like I have to outsource my funk. I have to outsource everything. Um, and there isn't a lot of um, good, healthy soul music that happens in Lewisham, I can tell you that. But, you know, we're here. Um, Steve was living in Sydney, which is not too far from me here. And Jane was living in Croydon, which is a little bit more further south. But me, myself, I'm from Hackney. I'm from the east side of London. Um, so I moved over here just to be closer to them type of thing. And um, yeah, that, that kind of didn't go too well. <laughs> as soon as I moved over here, the band broke up. <laughs> but that's how it goes. Yeah, just too much craziness. Yeah, it was a bit crazy in the 80s, 88. Yeah, I think we we kind of, I think we got our first proper paycheck in 88. So we got together in 81 and then in 88, uh, that's when the money started coming in. And, you know, people started to lose interest a little bit in being there on time and that hunger slipped away a little bit. And before you knew it, we were, you know, I was in the studio all on my own type of thing which is how we kind of broke up because, you know, um, everything we did, we split three ways. So if you're in the studio all on your own and uh, when the music comes out, you're splitting it three ways. It can get very 
you know, awkward, you know, um, you've done two thirds of the work and everyone else is just going to come and get their slice of the pie. You can only do that for a few albums <laughs> and then it starts to get a little bit funny. And I think that's part of the reason. And I think the other part was just that I had had enough of that. And I, I, I kind of started an argument with the other two. I, I said to them, you know, if we don't get together and get in the studio, it's going to, we're going to have problems, you know, cause I'm writing these songs, you know, you guys got to get involved. And I don't think they took that too well. <laughs> it didn't go down too well. <laughs> um, and um, about two days later, I was driving the car and um, I heard that Loose Ends were broken up. So obviously that argument had resonated wrongly with them and it didn't do what it was intended to do, which was to get them in the studio back again. But that was that. That, that's how we broke up, basically. It wasn't nothing to do with uh, people wanting to go in a different direction or... In fact, I think Jane did actually leave and start up her own... Um, she wanted to do a solo album, and she did go to MCA and arrange a solo deal with them directly, um, which I didn't even know about, but that is what she did, but... I was just basically the one with the product and that's kind of how things kind of took off for me in a kind of a sense. But in the background, I was always trying to come with the next one and not satisfied with the ones that we were doing and trying to make them better. And I, um, I guess I clashed with Nick Martinelli a few times over it as well. Well, let's let's uh, re rewind a little bit. Uh, I think what you did there is kind of give us, you know, like on show when you watch shows and they give a clip that shows like where things are heading. So it's like a good <laughs> teaser. Well, let's get some of that backstory, uh, Carl, okay. and find out. Um, you know, first off, how did you get immersed in music? What drove you in that direction? You know, before Loose Ends, even. Um. So I was. Um, just basically going to church and just playing in church guitars and stuff along with whatever they were playing we didn't get no quarter we were just we had guitars and the church was running a program that, you know they'd let little children have a guitar like 15 year olds they'd let us take a guitar home if we wanted if we could join the choir they were trying to build up their choir so a friend of mine he had a guitar um, and I, I just basically followed him. I was taking guitar lessons at school and I met him and he had a beautiful style of playing. So I basically followed him and played in churches. I played the bass on a guitar, not on the bass. Um, and then we started our own group called Uptown People. Um, and this is all while at school type of thing. And from there, Uptown People, we met a guy called Granville Williams, Mark Granville Williams, who helped us out, gave us advice. And um, he thought that we were stars. He saw us walk into our first gig. <laughs> we were walking to the gig. So we weren't stars, um, stars at all. But this guy thought, you know, we looked good. So he um, helped us out. And he became our first manager when we signed to Virgin, which was uh, didn't work out well either. They didn't. I didn't like him. So, what, yeah. what year around was that, Carl? Well, we signed in 1981. And uh, yeah, it was a weird situation, but we'll get into that. I'm sure you have questions for me that leads up to that. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Um, what were your influences, your biggest influences? Of course, the church, as you mentioned, but in terms of yeah. you know more uh, popular music, what were some of the big influences? Well, I was just a bass player, so I didn't have any soul music influences as such. Although they were soul albums in my house, I was mainly into bass players. So I'd be into Stanley Clark, Jaco Pastoris, Alfonso Johnston, um, and that was the top guys for me. And then there was, you know, Nathaniel East and all these other great bass players. I, Abram Laboro was probably the last one I added to my favorite bass players. Percy Jones from Brand X. Um, and yeah, I bought a wild bass because of him. So yeah, he was a big influence. Um, he played with um, Phil Collins. And that's when I first saw Phil Collins play jazz rock. I was very excited. Um, Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa was a big influence on me as well. I went to see him when I was 16. And um, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> this guy was singing songs about why does it hurt when I pee? And, you know, Lucille has messed my mind up. So I couldn't not believe someone would sing songs like that. <laughs> did you know Did you know what you're in for before you went to the show? No, I didn't know. No, I didn't. A friend of mine is a musician. He said, Kyle, you're going to love this show. <laughs> this guy is out there, you know. And we were into that jazz rock, jazz fusion. Um, he was more jazz rock. Um, Alan Holsworth, um, you know, real sort of rocky type of like Mahavishnu Orchestra. I was more into, uh, as I say, um, George Duke, um, Stanley Clark, And so the two of us together was in the same group, Uptown People. And we kind of revolutionized that group because my friend Lawrence, he was the, the leader, but because we were listening to such great music, we kind of outgrew him a little bit, but he still had that great sound with the guitar, which is the style that I used on Hanging on a string. That is his style of playing. Um, but anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, you named some of my favorite bass players, that's for sure. I mean, okay. and interesting though that you were um, into so many that were, you know, not UK based. Right. Yes, because my parents are from the West Indies, and my dad hates British music with a passion. And he always used to tell me that British British people cannot play soul music, R&B music, any type of music that anyone wants to listen to. <laughs> and so he kind of used to take the mickey out of us. We used to have our little soul group and he used to um, he used to just take the mickey. When we came back from the show, he'd always say, so which deaf organization did you play for today? Because <laughs> I'm sure you must be playing for the deaf people. <laughs> I heard you rehearsing. <laughs> That's a harsh critic. Yeah, yeah, he was a hard, but then it made me want to play more like the Americans more and more because he he loved American music, and he was a bit of a stubborn guy as well. He didn't. I don't think he admitted to his friends that his son was doing music because he just thought I wouldn't be good at it, and he he sort of broadcasted it around saying this guy's I don't know what this guy's doing. He's an idiot, you know, um, and then. When I started making music, he wasn't that impressed either. He was like, yeah, you made a record, so what? You know, and then it was on the radio, and then he'd be like, ah, turn it over. Let me, you're making me miss the cricket. You know, <laughs> and then eventually um, he left. Him, him, and my, him and my mother broke up, so 
he was out of the picture. And then that's when the music started to really roll in for me. I was into Pat Safini and uh, George, Joe Sample, the Crusaders, Earth, Wind & Fire, um, Cool and the Gang. Oh, man. It was like, you know, he, him being out of the house was like wicked. He left the stereo as well and a good portion of the records. So, oh, man, I was in bliss. Um, so, I, and my main thing was just to kind of, I didn't realize it, but I was kind of trying to be as good, better than what he would expect. So uh, he was a big influence in my life, really. Him being so stubborn and such a, a hard ass about it made me want to do it more, you know. <laughs> it worked out from that respect. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But interesting, though, because, you know, I mean, in Britain, of course, with the blues, the American blues was such a huge influence and they brought it back to the States that way. Um, But it seems like from what you're saying, R&B and jazz and jazz funk and funk didn't really so much uh, do that except for, for you. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, To be fair in the musical community that, I was involved in jazz, funk, and soul, and all of that was it. I mean, all my friends, Jewish friends, Chinese friends, if they were playing music, they had to acknowledge it because it was really big in those times. Stevie Wonder's talking book, um, um, Songs in the Key of Life, that did a lot of damage. You know, that made people really think, whoa, this is some great music we're getting here. Um, and then you know, you had great groups like the Crusaders, um, the Barkays. Um, there was just great stuff coming out. And I think we just couldn't miss it. On the radio in England was a little bit different because the radio, they weren't, they just were happy to play rock music all day long. And, you know, they had their scene going on. And this music that was coming in, it was American music. And they definitely did not want British people playing it. And unless it was in a different context, like rock. So like Rolling Stones um, played R&B, they were a rock and roll band, really. And in that context, they love it. Um, British radio loved that. But in the context of deep soul, they did not like us in England. We we were not a liked group. It was like, yeah, they're doing their thing, but we don't play that. Um, but we we were lucky because the pirates, there was this big explosion. I don't know if you know about this, where there was this big explosion in the 80s. And it was the pirates, pirate radio. Anyone with a CB radio was playing their favorite records. And then it just took off like nearly every area that you went into. Someone was playing good music and it was illegal, but it was good music. And and somewhere in there, there would be a loose ends record. So if you were driving up and down London in the eighties, you might hear a loose ends three or four times a day. We didn't have license play, but we was famous, like ghetto famous <laughs> type of thing, <laughs> if you can call it that. In the hood, you know, you'd always hear loose ends. Yeah, I mean, actually, in the late seventies, like punk and stuff was big, right? I mean, that was. What was that? Punk punk music was very big in the late seventies, yeah. right in the UK. So, um, which is completely opposite. 
<laughs> I don't know why. I mean, punk music to me, it's, uh, it don't have no, like, can you go back and play like 15 top punk records? It just don't make sense to me. Like Susie and the Banshees, you know, it's like, ah, big screaming guitars. And I'm not hearing no melody. I'm not hearing no um, sophistication. And my, I turn off when I, I, I can't hear, I don't get it. Um, there is a couple of groups the, the thing I liked about punk was the, the reggae association. They would be so rocking and they would love these reggae groups to be their support. But, so I love that, that side of it I get. But the whole thing with the curtain up so you can spit and uh, uh, nah, that's not me, but it was big here and it was really big here. Yeah. Um, we, had to, we stole bits and pieces of it though with the dress because what came from punk was new romantics um that kind of was some of the fallout from punk music um adam ant um you know they were they, they had these new romantics sort of coming up and they had sort of mixed the dress where with diamantes um old school very old school almost um mid-century dress wear and we stole some of that I guess um, when we used to dress up, um, but for the, as for the music, uh, sorry, <laughs> but it was big and, you know, to get people interested in soul from England was hard. We had to go around to a lot of different radio stations because we wasn't getting that centralized, that nationalized play from Radio One. What, were there, were there uh, dance clubs that, that played it? Dance clubs would play our songs. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I mean, I don't know if these guys are filling out their PR, PRS forms when they do this because that doesn't really register. <laughs> I mean, but it gets the club going. And when people hear your song, great, you know, but for it to really fly in England, you need to be on Radio 1 because that radio station has power over the whole of the nation. So it has transmitters in the south of England, in Scotland and in Ireland. So when they play your song, a couple million people are hearing your song. And if you don't have that, then you have the little regional stations that may be only four or five miles of um, power. So, you know, we had to go to all of those little stations to make, to get our song, to get into the top 20, not even in the top 10, you know, you know just all week long going to these radio stations. We really worked our songs, but then it was good for us because it, it helped us to promote, to learn how to promote the record, um, do interviews from morning till night um, and dance in the evening, you know, go and like dance for your supper. We did at least a thousand on each song. We did a thousand performances up and down in the country. Uh -huh. So by the time songs started to break, we was, you know, we was a bit sort of geared up for the performance. We'd been doing it. Did, did you um, get signed as under the name Loose Hands or were you the other no. when you got signed? Yeah, we were signed as Loose End. We were called Loose End at first. And um, we basically, I mean, I didn't really have nothing to do with that. That was more Jane and Steve. Uh, they went past a, um, a hairdressing salon and saw the name Loose End, the Loose End or something. And so we loved the name. Um, they kind of, 
I'm I'm the last person to join, believe it or not. I I'm only powerful in the band because of my content, which I brought to the band, because I was the you know like a main writer. I did the lyrics and I did the music, and you know Steve does some music and Jane does some lyrics. But because I was able to do both, I, I kind of became the centerpiece. But really, the leadership came from Steve. You know, Steve put the band together. In the beginning, you know, when he was really um, on top of it, you know, it was a good, it was his dream, you know. He got Jane, um, and Jane was brilliant. She's had that beautiful, silky voice. So for a minute, they were just doing these little Joe Stample type instrumentals, and she would sing on the end of the song, like average white band, you know, or pick up the pieces. So it'd be an instrumental, and then right at the end, then she would come in and do a little bit. And when I came in, I thought, well, that's very nice. That's very cute. But you know, this girl, she's got nice voice. She looks good. She could be the real centerpiece. Well, as soon as I started writing, uh, we wrote a song called No Stranger to Darkness, which she kind of aced it. So on the spot, really. And um, after that, it was Jane. We was writing for Jane, really. Um, and, you know, Jane would come in. She would do her her bit by writing on top of the track or, you know, mainly what would happen was I would play some guitar chords to Jane and she would come up with a line and then we'd sit and write the song. Then we'd go in the studio with Steve and Steve would join in and then he'd come up with a bit more, um, you know, programming maybe or some drums and then boom, the song was there. How did, how did you meet Steve? Uh, Steve, uh, Steve um, called me. I didn't know Steve. He somehow, I, a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend recommended me to Steve, a guy named Carlton White. He's a bass player out here, a great bass player, friend, family member, really, because my our family's um, kind of intertwined. But he put my name forward because Steve was looking for a bass player. But what happened was I was rehearsing and I got a phone call from um, someone just came, called me out this, no one knows where we was rehearsing, but somehow someone gave Steve the rehearsal, uh, telephone number. And he said, look, well, we're doing some rehearsals. We'd like it to come down. So I went down there and that was it. I mean, there was about 10, 15 models in this room. Sounded terrible. Sounded like a racket, but Steve could play some nice chords. And Jane had a nice voice. Well, the rest of them, I, I, I couldn't understand what they were trying to do. But they looked good, you know. So the next, so I started to play some bass and the drummer wasn't playing in time. It was awkward, you know, kind of said to him, man, you might need some rhythm section. <laughs> um, and he kind of looked at me as if to say, man, this guy's just, he just got here and he's telling me how to run the band already. <laughs> so... It was a bit funny. I mean, the, but the next time I got there, he did take my advice. He got rid of everyone. So it was just me, him, and Jane. So I was like, ah, I didn't mean to go that crazy, but okay. So how are we going to do this? And what, what year was that when you first connected? This is like 1980. So I must have been about 19. Um, yeah, so it was about 1980. So we were fooling around with drum machines at then. The Lin 9000, no, the Lin drum. Um, and so, yeah, from the Lin drum, we put down a little bass line. Steve was very good 
at um, playing the same bass line over and over like a machine um, for three minutes without making any mistakes. He was like a sequencer. Um, I was like, wow, Steve, he was really good at that. Uh, and then he'd play the keyboards on top. And so our sound became a drum machine band. We was like a drum machine band. We didn't have a drummer. It was just me playing bass. Victor, one, one of the early ones of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't have no drummer. We was like a drum machine group, um, like ABC and all these groups that were around at the time. But um, it started to get, we started to get into it, actually. We started to enjoy that part of our sound. And um, we started to do songs deliberately with drum patterns that a drummer couldn't play. Um, and... Um, you know, we, we tried to embrace that because we didn't have a drama. So, hey, why not do crazy things? Um, we were introduced to Nick Martinelli and then he kind of slapped us around about it. He said, no, you can't do that. We have to bring some musicians in. How are you going to go live? You know, and um, so he said, yeah, OK, we, we work with Nicky. We played him. We sent him some songs and uh, he liked them. And uh, the rest is history. I guess Nicky knew the drum machine side of us was a big part of what we did. So one of the first things we did, um, we did a, an album and he kept all the drum machine parts in from the demos. And we recorded, this album was called um, A Little Spice. And we did some jazz songs with a drum machine, which was quite weird. <laughs> but he he liked it. And we did this one song called uh, A Little Spice, the main song, just the way how Steve used to do these songs with um, Jane singing at the end. Um, and um, we got signed because of that song. Um, but while... That's a very jazzy one. Yeah, it's very jazzy. Um, the guy that signed us, he... I remember his name. I think it's Scott... Uh, Anyway, it'll come to me. So anyway, he signed us to MCA. And he just loved the end of the song. It said, oh, baby, oh, baby. And he, he just loved that bit. And um, so what happened next is it took about nine months and all the processing and paperwork to go through. And by that time, we was writing our next album. Um, and while we were writing it, we was in Philadelphia. And he, he came down to the studio just to meet us, you know, to say welcome to MCA and stuff. Had you been to Had you been to America before? Yeah, we we recorded the first album, A Little Spice, in Philadelphia. All right, it was written in in England, but then it was recorded in Philadelphia. Was that and your first trip to the stage? Yeah, that, that was the first trip. Yeah, well, with a as the band. Yeah, I my first trip was when I was sixteen, oh. and. Um, I was very heavily influenced by Pat Metheny, um, San Lorenzo, that track. Um, every day I heard that track on the radio. And when I came back, I knew I wanted to be a musician. So that was really the, the musician that inspired me, Pat Metheny. Um, I never heard nothing like that on the radio in England. Never. You know, it sounded like I was in someone's bedroom, the way how some of these jazz stations would roll out their set. It was so intimate and and kind of cool. I love that about America. Um, but when I went back with Steve, we was in Philadelphia, and it was more of a soul thing on the radio. Um, we were listening to Janet Jackson songs and, you know, Atlantic Star, um, 
Stephanie Mills. And I wasn't really too much into that, actually. I, I still love my jazz funk at that point. But um, when we did the uh, meeting with the guy that tried to sign us, well, he did sign us to MCA, we were recording Hanging on the String. So he's come to meet us, and he can hear Hanging on the String. So uh, immediately he started to jump up and down, and he was making phone call using people's phones, you know, standing in the hallway using the phone. And we saw him in the office using the phone, and he was just on the phone excited. So we didn't really know what he was up to because we was already signed to Virgin Records and we just thought he was a nice guy. But he was like, no, that's that's your hit record. You just I've just heard a hit record. So it's like, oh thank you very much. And we went out our way and nine months later he was right. You know, the song came out and it was a hit. So that was him. What's his name? Scott something. Like, it'll come to me. <laughs> that song um it actually it hit bigger in America than in, in the UK, right? Yeah, um, again, the, the UK did not play Loose End Records on national radio, so we would get all of these little radio stations playing the record, but we wouldn't get the national airplay, which is what you do need. You, you, there's no way you're going to... You, you can't compete with national radio. Um, you can maybe win a few thousand people, but national radio is millions, so they're not playing your record. Yeah, it's very hard, but they did play the record when they had to play the record. So the record may have charted at 38. So because it was in the top 40, they had to play the record at least once or twice a week. Uh, and that's what we would get. We wouldn't get no extras. It would just be the once or twice, the required amount. So we didn't really get a fair shot at the charts with Hanging on the String when it came out. I thought if they played it more, we would have had probably the same result as America. But America, did play it and you know I could hear it every every day when I was out there. So how much of a thrill was how much of a thrill was that when you heard it out here? Yeah. Wow, it was a big thrill, I tell you that. <laughs> I mean it was kind of crazy because we was on Virgin at that point for three years and then we came back to London from making that record. Um, and we got to Virgin and people were waving to us out, out the, the windows of the offices at Virgin. They were like, hey, and one girl had the T-shirt, loose hands T-shirt. I was like, okay, that's different. <laughs> and then when we were driving home from the record label, uh, I heard um, one of my songs on the radio. So that, I'm, you kind of get, it, the picture starts to become colored in type of thing. You can't, you start seeing colors and you start to see contrast in people's behavior towards you. And then your song is just playing everywhere. And as a matter of fact, for me, it was getting a bit embarrassing because I'd be talking to someone and my record would come up. And, you know, and people in the room would go, oh, there you go. That's his song. You don't know who this is? And then I'd have to stop talking and... Uh, you know, thank you, bye-bye. <laughs> a lot of the times, you know, you go to the barbers, you go to um, West Indian food shop, um, record would just come on and someone goes, look, there, there, there's that guy now. And then, you know, you'd have to run out of there or... It, I, I don't know if I'd like to be any more famous than we were in those ends because it's hard work. <laughs> it, 
be nice to everyone 24 hours a day, traveling so much. And then at the end of it, if you bump into anyone, you have to be nice, you know? So it's hard. It's hard. That part of it, the fame part was, at first it was brilliant. And then after a while, it starts becoming like, wow. Well, um, did, did you did you actually go out and tour America at all uh, based yeah. on that first record? And uh, where yeah. did you, who, who'd you go out with? And, and what kind of like stuff did you have to do in terms of TV appearances? And Well, it was kind of weird with that song. We didn't go on tour. We did a promotional tour. And it meant we were just playing for free. Uh, the record label would just put us in clubs and say, do your PA. So it was like we would fly to L.A. and someone would pick us up at the airport, take us to our hotel and tell us that they'd see us in the morning. And then they would literally spend 10 days picking us up at 6 o'clock in the morning, driving us around to all the radio stations and all the... Um, warehouses that kept the record and it was tiring it was and then you know you go out to Florida someone pick you up at the airport take you to your hotel and then they tell you six o'clock you know we start and we end at 11 o'clock and sometimes you might have to do a performance at the end of that as well so it was really tough doing America but you got the result you know it was it was worth it in the end but um, it was hard and we were playing for free we you know we weren't getting paid to to play, I think if you if you did that now, <laughs> so you tell Cardi B you're gonna be playing for free, you should you know, take your head off. <laughs> <laughs> but that was then, you know, that was a different time. You know that that first record really had some good uh, guitar work on it too. Um, right. You know. Right. Pretty who right. who who was doing most of the arrangements and and things like that? Was that you or or Nick or? Yeah. Well, me and Steve did nearly all the arrangements. Steve did the keyboard parts and I would do the guitar parts and the bass, all the little parts around Steve. Uh, or vice versa. I'd come up with some parts and Steve would do all the little keyboard parts around me. So but the guitar parts that you hear, um see what happened with hanging on especially hanging on the string was when I turned up to the session because hanging on the string, the demo has got real bass on it. But when I turned up to the session, Steve and Nikki had already had this conversation about making it sound like with the 808 in the Moog bass and all this stuff. And Steve, uh, he didn't tell me nothing. So when I, when I got there with my bass, they're already playing the bass and it, sounds, it sounded lovely. It sounded like, wow, like cream, you know? And so I sat down and I appreciated it for the first hour. And then in my mind, I was, you know, you start to wonder, well, why didn't someone say something? It's kind of awkward. You've got a bass player sitting there and you're playing the bass on the song. And, you know, it's like, because we are the writers. So you think, you know, someone may have said something, but they didn't. So then I said, um, Do you, would, would anyone mind if I played a little guitar in the corner? while the song is being recorded. So they said, yeah, 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 sure. No one was looking at me at this point. Everyone was had their back to me. I was sitting behind them. And they set up a little guitar for me in the corner. So I would just play away while they were recording bits and pieces of synths and strings and every sort of other 
thing I did, Nick Martin, and he said, yeah, we need that in the track. Yeah, put that in the track. Yeah, I like that. And I must have did about three or four parts. And for the end of the session, Nicky, you know, he had me playing full on guitar on that track. And the, um, the engineer is a guitarist, Bruce Whedon. Um, not Quincy Jones is Bruce Whedon, but this, this dude, he was a great guitarist. Um, and he didn't really like my guitar playing. But Nicky used to give him a look as if to say, make the boy sound good, okay? So he would put some compression on the guitar, a little bit of echo and a little bit of chorus. And before you know it, the guitar sound, you know, beautiful. So I'd just play away and Nicky would be like, yeah, I like that. And I, I like the other thing you were doing earlier. Um, and then he'd be like, set up a DAP machine, set up something so that he can, it wouldn't be DAP, but it would be set up a, a tape machine so that all these ideas can can uh, be recorded and and then uh, I became the guitarist of the band because before that I was just a bass player and I only played guitar really on the demos um, but then Nicky just insisted that my feel and what I was doing was a part of the sound in fact he said you might be a better guitarist than you are a bass player and he didn't say that in a nice way <laughs> he said that in a kind of way like I don't even rate your bass playing, really. <laughs> you need to concentrate on the bass a bit more, but your guitar playing is on point, which, you know, he kind of saw other things in me that I didn't really realize, but I was kind of just playing for my for my supper, really, when I was playing the guitar and that, because I knew that they took the bass off and I didn't know what was going to come next, you know? <laughs> so I played the guitar part. The whole thing for me was an accident anyway. I wasn't supposed to be singing. I was just a bass player, but um, Jane would sometimes run out of ideas, and she'd say, what do you hear? And I would say, well, I hear this, and then she'd be like, well, you have to put that down. So accidentally kind of stumbled into all of these little pockets of songwriting like that, and Nicky, you know, he loved that, so it was a lot of creativity when you, and that whole thing with them playing in the and all that throws that the creativity um even more you know because it was like okay so you 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 play in the bass okay well let's see what we can do with the guitar and you know it just made it much more competitive between me and steve and it was great for a while doing that hey carl um is your uh, your computer plugged in for power yeah yeah okay i want to make sure because um at times it's getting a little pixelated and sometimes the power can be an issue but, um, you know, I noticed you're talking about loving the jazz funk guys from America. And I noticed on this record, you had someone who had experience with that in, in Doc Gibbs, um, oh. who I've had on this show before and just, you know, great percussionist. I have I have photos with us in the studio with him. Um, Doc, Doc Gibbs, <laughs> is he still alive? He's going, yeah. He's still doing it. Oh wow! It's amazing. Yeah, he was the just only... on the show like last year. No way. Yeah. It was funny because um, he smoked a spliff in the session, <laughs> and never a Nick Martinelli session with people smoking weed will never happen, right? So here comes Doc Gibbs. He walks in. He's got a joint in his mouth, and Nicky says, "Where are you going with that?" So he says, man, I came to play. He's like, yeah, you make one mistake and see what happens. 
I'll kick your session. I'll kick your ass off for this session. And Doc Gibbs said, "All right, I like that. I like those terms." And he went in and he played one takes, every single one, and he really added to our music in in a special way. When he was playing with mallets, uh, soft mallets, and cowbells, he had all the cowbells set up and bell trees, and you know he make a section go from one. Sorry, he would make the music go from one section to another and it would sound so professional like at the end of a verse going into a chorus just he would just have those little touches that he would do and if you needed the percussion to bubble under and not be too um, intrusive not be too excitable he'd be that guy he could just do the same little patterns softly like like as if he was playing with Q-tips, you know, he, he could play cowbells with them soft mallets and, oh my gosh, this guy was an, unbelievable. He played all the stuff that I have in my LA box. Um, LA box, it's just like a percussion box, basically. But he he would play everything, but professionally, like he really took care in how he hit something, when he hit something. And it was, it was amazing. That guy, he really made our sound, especially on the first album, he made our sound sound professional. And Is he on all the tracks or just a few of them? I think he's on a few. There were some that Nicky felt didn't need him. And there were some that as soon as he, you know, hit the first mallet or first block or bongo, it sounded like, yeah, that's going to stay. And so maybe three or four tracks didn't have him on it, but I think for the first album, definitely he was he was all over that. I think we just let him play, and I think Nicky eventually took him off one and two of them. He he just played straight, like we just ran track one, track two, track three, and he just recorded on his tracks on all of those songs very quickly. I think he was out of the session by lunchtime. It started at eleven. And by 1.30, he was, he was done. <laughs> a, a lot of those Philip musicians were like that. They wouldn't muck around. They'd come in, 45 minutes, set up, and then the session would be 15 minutes. They'd be like, what? He took longer to set up than he did to play. <laughs> yeah, we had a few like that. Tommy Campbell, drummer from Philadelphia. He was a teacher at Berkeley, and he was amazing. I mean maybe four or five drummers, top drummers from Philadelphia were at the session to set his drums up for him. So we knew that this guy must be some serious dude. We'd never heard of him before, but see, Nick Martinelli comes from that school of um, Dexter Wanzel. Mm. Dexter knows all the cats. And he taught, he taught Nicky, really. So Nicky knew how to draw people out for different things. There Dexter was on the show earlier this year. Already? Yeah, yeah. So being a student and fan of the music as you as you were, was it sort of a thrill to be in Philly, the place, you know, where you had the OJs and, you know, and the sound of Philadelphia and that incredible history of soul music there? Absolutely. But for me, I didn't really, I wasn't really into that music, um, OJs and all that. Uh, Philadelphia, sound of Philadelphia. I didn't really know how good it was. I had one song called um, 10%, 
which was like a disco song. And I think it was from Philadelphia. It was on the South Soul, South Soul label. And there was a couple of other songs that on the Philly International label. Um, just as just before we got there, I think that Fat Larry's band began blowing up. Um, how Melvin and the Blue Notes, uh, they were from Philly, Philly International, I think. Uh, so I, I knew those bands. Apart from a couple of tracks on Howard Melvin's albums um, with Teddy Pendergrass, I didn't really know them that well. But I heard an album by Brandy Wells, who was a singer, on what, and it was produced by Watch Out Productions. And I loved this album. And so a little later on, I'm talking with a from Virgin, a guy called Mick Clark. And he says um, that he loves that album too. And um, that, you know, as a matter of fact, we should hook up with the producer. He's a really good friend of his. So I said, really? So he said, yeah, just like that. But what, you're going to call him? He said, yeah, I'm going to give him a call and see what he says. And so he calls Nick Martinelli. And within like five days of them talking backwards and forwards, they had hashed out a little deal for Nicky to come over and meet us in England. And so that was very exciting because now I'm starting to look into the history of the Philly stuff and OJs and all of these acts. So it was like meeting him really triggered my interest on that. Before that, I didn't really know them. But when I got there and I saw, oh my gosh, all of those songs, which most of them are in my record collection. My parents would have bought them. They was all there, all, you know, Lou, is it Lou Rawls? Um, I mean, really serious records, all made in that studio with Sigma, uh, Sigma Sound. Um, Alpha was a little bit different. <laughs> it was a little bit out there, but um, Sigma Sound definitely had a lot of great records recorded there. Very intimidating, actually. <laughs> I, I wanted... The musicians that were there as well. Brian Loren, um, some you know um, Eugene Wild. I mean, these guys were top of their game, you know. When we turned up, um, so yeah, it was very intimidating because you know Philly in Philadelphia they don't really have a lot of like if you are doing a take, a recording take back then, and you mess up and you say, "Oh, can you can you take it back?" The re the the song will on for about another maybe 10 seconds then it stops and you can see the the producer looking at um the engineer and they're sort of debating and then they come they press the button and they say do you want us to start again and you think wow these people don't like dropping in don't like drop-ins we call them drop-ins you know when you have to retake the session retake the recording so yeah, most of the recordings were done like one take, except for us that is. But the musicians that played with us, they were very quick. Go ahead. There are a couple of uh, uh, tracks on that little Spice record. I just wanted to bounce off your impression that I had. Um, one is that Tell Me What You Want, a little catchy yeah. R&B kind of track. Um, right. Reminding me a little bit of like Aura, at the time, who did um, wow. uh, Are You Single and Just Make Up Your Mind and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. No, it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> right. I'm sure, you know, some of the stuff is just like in the ether, and usually it is, but, um, yeah. you know, I think it mixes well with that. And, you know, I was yeah. a DJ, so. Um, I can tell. Um, and there's so much love. Um, struck me a little bit like uh, Let My Love Come Down, the Evelyn King track. Oh, yeah. I guess it, I don't like that song so much. Love. <laughs> I didn't think it came out. The, the demo was brilliant, but, you know, Nicky kind of, he was like, look, man, these songs that you're making, you ain't going to get no airplay with these songs. So we need something a little bit more radio friendly. So we did that. Um, but it, I guess it does have that because she fit ish type of style to it but you know she uses a lot of gated sounds and you know making them compressed and stuff but nikki was more into reverbs and atmosphere and you know a little bit kind of like a jazz funk producer um but yeah that, that whole uh, was it um so much love yeah i didn't like that song at all i used to hate it always used to jump over that one <laughs> and you, you get your favorites though you know i like well, on the first album i like feel so right now choose me da na 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 i thought yeah, choose, choose choose me is nice excuse me yeah i thought he did that excellent job with choose me <clears throat> i mean it was just two guitar chords and for he really really did a good job him and steve when steve played the chords it sounded big you know <laughs> <laughs> 